We're stepping away from Proverbs, as I mentioned, and last week I talked about justice and mentioned towards the end of the sermon that to work for justice means that we prioritize proximity to the poor and powerless. We prioritize proximity to the poor and powerless, those lacking in spiritual, emotional, economic, social power that the church is to prioritize proximity to that. So I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more as we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, a powerful story. And we've had some good time, the, uh, this, the first two services. And so I'm ready to preach one more day. So uh, Luke chapter 10, when you get there, hold on to your place. Let's pray. Let's invite the Spirit of God to breathe in us as we open Scripture together. Let's pray together. Lord, our deepest desire at this moment of our service is that we would hear your voice through the pages of Scripture. Lord, we just don't want to hear another story. We just don't want to hear another message. We want to hear your words spoken to us right where we are. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and breathe on us? Would you open our eyes so that we may see what you're calling us to do? May you open our ears, Lord, so that we may hear your voice. Lord, would you open our hearts? so that we would receive every gift you have for us today. May we be people of justice today, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. There is a popular story about a guy who was walking down the street, and as he was walking down the street, he fell into a hole, and the walls were so steep in the hole that he could not get out. And so the story goes on to tell that three different people passed by and they had three different approaches to trying to solve this man's problem. The first person that stopped by was a doctor. A doctor passed by and the guy shouts out, hey, can you help me? And the doctor looks down and the doctor writes a prescription. He throws it down the hole and he continued to walk on. A lawyer comes along and the guy shouts out, sir, could you help me get out of this? The lawyer looks down in the hole and says, we're going to find out whoever did this to you and we're going to sue them. And he throws down his business card and he keeps walking. Then a priest comes along and the man shouts, father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me get out? And the priest pauses for a moment and he writes out a prayer and he throws it down the hole and continues to walk on. Now, uh, this uh, fictitious story is an accurate portrayal of much of our world and much of our lives when we come across people who are hurting, when we come across suffering, when we come across pain. It's interesting uh, to note how in human relationships and just human psychology, how it is, whenever we come across pain, many of us do our best to avoid it. We do our best to distance ourselves from it. Isn't this why when you're watching the television and, and uh, infomercial comes on of poverty in another part of the world or some, uh, something that's ter- horrible going on in the world that you got uncomfortable with it, you're looking for the remote control so you can change the channel to sort of ease your own discomfort. We tend to distance ourselves from those who are suffering, distance ourselves from those who are victims of injustice. But in our text today, we are reminded that the gospel is the story that speaks of how God, how close God is to the poor and powerless. 
And this is to encourage those of us that are poor and powerless or feel poor and powerless. And it's to challenge some of us in this room who have a little bit of power at our disposal. In our text, we find the story that's scandalous on love and scandalous on justice and scandalous on mercy. And what we want to see today is basically this, this line here, this truth here, that because God is close to the poor and powerless, God's people should be too. Because God is close to the poor and powerless, God's people should be too. And this is what we find in Luke chapter 10, the famous story of the Good Samaritan. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he said. He replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say believe this and you will live. He doesn't say write on this and you will live. He doesn't say tweet this and you will live. He says do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from, Jericho to, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. When we pick up in our story, Jesus is approached by a lawyer, not a lawyer in the typical way that we would understand the lawyer. This man is more like a Bible scholar. This man is a religion professor. And this professor comes to Jesus to give Jesus a pop quiz. He's trying to trap Jesus. And he asked Jesus, what must he do to inherit eternal life? Now, whenever you decide to give Jesus a pop quiz, you better be careful. Because Jesus has a way of turning the tables in a subtle and yet brilliant way. And so the professor asked Jesus a question, and Jesus responded with a question, which ultimately turned the tables around in terms of who's really in control of this conversation. Who really has control of this dialogue? Eugene Peterson uh, tells a story of the Jewish novelist, Elie Wiesel. I've quoted him last week. And um, this person was interviewing Elie Wiesel on the way that Jewish people uh, converse. And he has this question, this interviewer said, uh, I noticed that you Jews often answer questions by asking another question. Why do you do that? 
To which Ellie Vassell responded, why not? <laughs> and so Jesus asked this question. And as they're in conversation, they're engaging in some form of theological table tennis. A little Bible proof texting here, a little Bible verse here and there. And so these men are getting into a conversation, and it seems as if the professor has Jesus beat. The professor feels like he has Jesus in the corner. He has Jesus stumped, and so he asks Jesus a question. The professor's going in for the kill, and he asks the question, and who is my neighbor? As if to say, I'm, got, I'm about to get Jesus right now, and who is my neighbor? And at that moment, Jesus takes out his secret weapon, a parable. He takes out a story. He doesn't answer the question with some theological uh, reflections. He doesn't go into some biblical verses here and there. Jesus starts telling a story. And the story he told goes like this. There was a man who was walking down Jericho, which is a very dangerous road in a very dangerous neighborhood. And this man gets beat down, robbed, and left for dead. The story says that he's half dead. And Jesus begins to introduce the cast of characters. First, a Levite comes, a priest comes, and then a Levite comes. And as they're listening to the story, the religion professor and those that are around them listening to this conversation, you would imagine they're probably thinking, Jesus, we've heard this story before. Jesus, you got to get a little more creative with your story because this was a very famous story that people would tell. Jesus just put a little slant on it. The way that they were anticipating the story to end would be this. They were expecting some anti-clergy hero to come onto the scene. In other words, an ordinary Jew who was not part of the religious establishment. And the moral of the story would be this. You don't have to be a priest. And you don't have to be a Levi to show mercy, to show justice, to show love, to show compassion. Anyone can do it. And so he, they're expecting Jesus to, 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 to showcase the hero of the story as an ordinary Jew. But Jesus instead flips the script. Jesus upsets their equilibrium. Jesus blows their mind. And Jesus introduces not an ordinary Jewish man as the hero of the story. Jesus introduces a Samaritan on the scene. And you can be sure that when the word Samaritan comes on the scene, their eyebrows have been lifted. Their blood is boiling. Their fists are clenching. They're wondering, Jesus, where are you going with this? Because our understanding of Samaritan is different than their understanding of Samaritan in that culture. Our understanding of Samaritan, when we hear Samaritan, we think of good Samaritan hospital. Or we think if you lost your wallet in Queens and someone found your wallet and texted you and the money was still in the wallet in Queens, we say, now that's a good Samaritan right there. Especially if the, the cash was still in there. But in their time, in Jesus' time, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. There was mutual hatred for each other. They were enemies, suspicious of each other. In Judaism, they would, they would, Gentiles, sinners, and Samaritans were not considered neighbors. The Samaritan, get this, was publicly cursed in the synagogues. Publicly cursed. The Samaritan, according to this Judaism, was excluded from the afterlife. 
They had sayings like this. He who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Now that might not sound nothing to you, but in Jewish culture, that's a diss. That's straight up, your mother is so dumb kind of diss. That's like, what? You said, what about that? That's a serious insult. They had phrases like this. If you do good, know to whom you do it and do not help the sinner or Samaritan. This is the cultural uh, mindset as it pertain to the Samaritan. And so Jesus is very intentional with his cast of characters. And he decides to use the Samaritan as the hero because in doing so, it exposed what was in the heart of this religion professor. The religion professor was looking for the hero to be someone who looked like him. The religion professor was looking for someone who was from his neighborhood. The religion professor was looking for someone who had his same political and theological viewpoints, but the story is problematic because Jesus does not tell him the story is, the hero of the story is someone who looks like you. It's someone who you despise. And this is a hard truth that Jesus is trying to communicate to this religion professor and to all of us today. It's about love. It's about mercy. It's about justice. And Jesus is, is letting us know in the story that we cannot be moving towards God and simultaneously moving away from our neighbor, especially our poor, vulnerable, powerless neighbor. That to move towards God is in the same respect to be moving towards those who are vulnerable. I, I love how Gabriel Mistral said, a, a Chilean um, poet who won the Nobel Prize years ago, she says this in her poetry, I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but he eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. Now what this poet is saying is that our relationship with God and with others is so uh, intricately connected, that it's hard to distinguish where one relationship stops and where the other begins. And so Jesus goes on to explain how this Samaritan loved, and he contrasts it with the religious leaders of the day. And let me explain what kept the religious leaders from helping the man who was caught in a ditch, the man who was in a hole. And a couple of things come to mind as I think about the Samaritan and allow me to project a little bit onto the text as my, how I would probably approach it, how many of you would probably approach it. What kept the, the Levite and the priest from helping the man in the hole perhaps was fear. Before we judge these two men, scholars say that they probably crossed the street because the people or person who beat up this man and put him in the ditch were probably still around. And so if you have any street sense, you're crossing the street because I don't want to get beat up then. So maybe it was fear that kept them from helping the man. Or maybe it was just they were absorbed in their work. Maybe the priest and the Levite were on the way to the temple, on the way to actually do their religious duties. And maybe they were in a rush. Maybe they saw the man, but they had to get to church, which is ironic because these men were the public health officials. These men were the distributors of alms to the poor. But maybe they were so preoccupied with their status. Maybe they were so preoccupied with their religious work that they failed to move towards this person in love and in justice and in mercy. 
And when you look at the story in this passage, we begin to notice really what this story is all about. The Good Samaritan story is not really a story about a, a, a compassionate spirituality. What this story is also, and you can argue primarily about, is a critique against religious passivity. It's not a story about compassionate spirituality. It's a critique against religious passivity. Jesus is basically saying that if his people won't work for justice, he'll find someone who will. Amen. Amen. Listen, the church tends to roll our eyes. When we see people working for justice, those people working for justice, those people that don't go to my church working for justice, those people who vote differently that are working for justice. But listen, as, as Tom Skinner has said, God will not go without a witness. And if the church doesn't want to work for justice, God will find someone who will. The critique, this is a critique against religious passivity. And Jesus says, heaven is not bankrupt. If I can't find anyone in the church to work for justice, I'll find somebody outside of the church to work for justice. God will use people who don't look like us. God will use people who don't believe like us. God will use people who don't live like we do and live where we do. God will not, God will not go without a witness. And so he raises the Samaritan up. They weren't expect This man was supposed to be outside of this communion with God. And Jesus highlights him as the hero of the story. And so what does it take for us to work for justice? What does it take for us to work for mercy? The Samaritan in his actions, in his deeds, tell us right here. And the first thing the Samaritan does is the Samaritan offers compassion. You can't have justice without compassion. What makes this story so shocking is this is the Samaritan's opportunity for payback. There's a Jewish man in a ditch. The Samaritan could have said, he could have just kicked him while he was down and said, this is for the last hundred years of messing up my people. <laughs> I just kept walking. Threw a rock at him to stay down. And he got, the Samaritan could have just finished the job with all the tension they had for years and years and years. He could have seen him, and this is a great opportunity to just kick him while he's down. But in spite of the fact that they didn't see eye to eye on so many issues, in spite of the fact that in November they're going to be voting differently, In spite of the fact that they don't look the same, the Samaritan decides to move towards this person with compassion. Now, Dr. King said that the question the Levite asked was, what's going to happen to me if I help this man? The Samaritan flips the question and says, what's going to happen to him if I don't help him? That's compassion. Now, this is a shocking picture of justice. And this is what Jesus, he's trying to upset our equilibrium. He's trying to make us uncomfortable. The word compassion comes from two words, really, to suffer with. To suffer with. And one of the more important things that we try to teach at New Life Fellowship is how to enter into the pain of others to suffer with, to feel with them, to enter into that space. 
How can we connect with people when we don't feel our own pain? How can we enter into the pain of others when we refuse to feel our own pain? And so at New Life Fellowship and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, one of the things that we try to do is to try to get people to feel. Not so that we can feel so that for feeling's sake, but that we can feel and enter into the pain of others as well. To feel what they feel. Compassion ultimately is to, to lead us to hearing the cry beneath the cry. To hearing the pain beneath the pain. To listening for the story beneath the anger. And this applies to all kinds of relationships. And one of the ways that I've experienced this is, of course, in my marriage. I've experienced this in my marriage. What does it look like to live with compassion with my wife? Now, this has been something I've been growing in over the 10 years that we've been married, growing in empathy, growing in compassion. And it's something that I have made great progress in, but I know I have a ways to go. Because when my wife is sad or when my wife is angry, I typically go into two modes. The first mode is the computer mode. She starts angry or she gets sad about something, and I go into, we'll fix it. I get, we're going to be rational about it. There's no need to cry here. There's no need to get angry. Let's get, let's get rational. Let's fix this. Option one, option two, option three. And so I get into that first mode there. The other mode is, I don't know any way of explaining it except to say I begin to superimpose or project onto her how I would respond to the situation. And so I say, I wouldn't be angry about that. I wouldn't be sad about that. Why, why are you responding like that? I, would I respond that way? I wouldn't respond that way. Like I'm Jesus, you know, if I would have respond that way. And so I go see a therapist. And this is part of my spiritual formation, my rule of life. I, I get therapy throughout the course of the year, different seasons. And I see a therapist. And the ther- I said, you know, my, 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 my wife gets angry. I want to help me here. Uh, the sadness. And, and he says, Rich, this is very, something simple that you can start doing. I said, I'm listening. Tell me. He says, when your wife is sad or when your wife is angry, I want you to do something simple. When she's angry, I want you to enter into the anger and be mad with her. I said, ah, okay, I don't know about <laughs> When she's sad, enter into the sadness and be sad with her. I said, I'll give it a shot, you know. So one day Rosie's angry. She's telling me about something. And typically I'm thinking computer mode or I'm thinking, why are you responding that way? But I decide to take the therapist's advice. She says something and I respond. She said, what? <laughs> How could she? <laughs> what? And Rosie's a bit like, what's going on there? <laughs> she gets mad. I get even madder. I'm just like, are you kidding me, right? <laughs> she gets sad and instead of, no, 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 don't be sad here. Well, let's, fix, let's fix this. Let's fix this. I, I, start, I enter into it. Sad with her. And I found out that when you enter into someone else's sadness and when you enter into their anger and you're angry with them, and you're sad with them, something begins to change. You begin to bond. All, it, it becomes a cathartic experience. All of a sudden, you, you, your, your anger, your sadness, you're not, you're not isolated. You're not alone. There's someone else that's with you in the process. That's compassion. Suffering with. 
Now let me apply it beyond just marriage and relationships and friendships. Let's apply it to the conversation on race and racial injustice and racial reconciliation. How can we move forward in this country in talking about racial justice and racial reconciliation when a black man or black woman tell about their experience of being in this country and talk about what it feels like as W.E.B. the boy talked about a double consciousness that, uh, that to be black in this country, you have a double consciousness that you are aware of who you are, but you're also aware of how others see you. It's a, it's a weight to carry. And when someone talks about what it's like to be African-American in this country, you say, ah, it's not that bad. Oh, you know what? Other countries, it's much worse than that. How are we supposed to work for justice when we can't enter into someone else's pain? Or whether that person's poor and you don't know what it's like to be poor. Compassion says, I'm going to enter in to listen, to learn more. To the immigrant, to the person without power, compassion says, let me enter into that space. This is what Jesus does. The Samaritan enters into that space. He bandages him up. He gets in close physical, emotional, and economic proximity. He bandages him up. He puts him in his donkey, his own car. He takes him to the inn. He's in close proximity. He is emotionally invested at this point. He's offering compassion. He is suffering with them. And we serve a God who suffers with us. This is why we look to the cross. Jesus Christ could have saved us from up there. He enters into our situation, the incarnation. He takes on human flesh. He takes on human limitations. He suffers with us. This is at the core of the gospel, compassion. To suffer with us. And so we can't move forward in our relationships. We can't move forward in our marriages. We can't move forward in racial reconciliation until we exercise compassion, until we enter into sadness, until we feel what others feel, until we suffer with them. The church is to learn how to enter into the pain. But the Samaritan doesn't just teach us about compassion. The Samaritan teaches us about something else. And it's important that we get this because compassion is not the end of justice. You can't just get to justice with compassion. What the Samaritan also shows us is that if we're going to live lives of justice, we also need to be committed to advocacy. It's not just compassion, it's that we learn to be advocates. This is what Proverbs 31 says. Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Watch the Samaritan in action. The Samaritan, he sees the man. He moves towards the man in physical, emotional, and economic proximity. And it says he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. This man is probably unconscious. This man is probably in a, in a daze, and this man speaks on his behalf. This man advocates for him. Justice requires advocacy. 
Advocacy is standing with people, especially those that are poor, especially those that are powerless, especially those that are on the margins and representing them. And this is a deeply gospel thing to do because Jesus is known as our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. When the father looks down and most of us are worthy of judgment, by what we've done and what we failed to do. Jesus is our advocate, representing us before the Father. He intercedes for us. This is great news. Because if it, if it were up to my own devices, I'm in trouble. But I have an advocate. I have a representative. I have someone speaking on my behalf. I have someone who is on my side and if we are to be like Jesus we are to express what we have received in advocating for others now, this doesn't mean we have to put together major programs this can happen in so many different ways you can advocate for the teenager who's alone and isolated advocate for the single mom advocate for those who are undocumented and what I love about our church is that there are many people that are committed to justice and advocacy and this week, I, was just, I just put an incredibly short list of people as it just came to me of the new lifers that are committed to being in close proximity with the poor and the powerless and offering advocacy and compassion. I thought about new lifers like Fatima Torres, who advocates for women who have experienced domestic violence. I think about people like Jonathan Walton who advocates for those experiencing racial injustice and economic poverty by engaging college students in mission, by writing poetry. I think about Red, who joined our staff to advocate for the poor in our community, to lead, as it were, this movement of New Life Fellowship Church in our local community and throughout Queens. I think about Delia, who advocates for teens, helping them to find their purpose and empowering them to address issues in our own community. Now, you might not know what to advocate for or who to advocate for, but God knows. And God has spelled it out very plainly for us. It's those who are poor and powerless. And whether that's spiritual or emotional or economic or social, God has called us to walk alongside and advocate for those who are poor. You might not know what to do, but when we begin to practice generosity as the Samaritan man did, practicing generosity, we're working for justice. When we educate ourselves about issues pertaining to the poor and powerless, we are working for justice. When we use our platforms that we have, our respective platforms, whether it's on social media or relationships or the job that we have, we are doing profound ministry of justice. But at the end of the day, what we have to answer as we think about justice is what is the core motivation for justice? What is the core motivation for justice? And the only way we can live out justice and the only way we can truly answer that question is until we understand who we are in the story. Until we know who we are in the story, we will not have the right motivation for working out justice. Who are we in the story? Here's the answer. We are not the priest in the story. We are not the Levite in the story. We are not the Samaritan in the story. We are first and foremost and fundamentally the man who lay there half dead in the story. 
And at the end of the day, this story is not about us trying to be a good Samaritan. At the end of the day, this story is about recognizing that we are in need primarily of the good Samaritan. Because at one point in our lives or another, you will find yourselves in a ditch. A relationship ditch, an economic ditch, an emotional ditch, a psychological ditch, a social ditch. You will find yourself in a ditch. You and I are the man who lay there half dead. But here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that the good Samaritan has come. And when we would have been hurt by the robbers of the world, when we have been overlooked and oppressed by the religious systems of our day, when we have been isolated and alone and there's no one to help, God in the person of Jesus comes and he washes our wounds. He comes in the person of Jesus and he rescues us from our pit. He comes in the person of Jesus and he pays our debts. He comes in the person of Jesus and he raises us to new life. The good Samaritan has come. Amen. The good Samaritan has come. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And if you've never been in the ditch, you don't know how to say amen to that. But when you've been in a ditch, when you've been in an economic ditch, in a social ditch, in a relationship ditch, in an emotional ditch, in a psychological ditch, in a spiritual ditch. You can get excited that the Good Samaritan has come in Jesus. He didn't have to stop, but he did anyway. Washes our wounds, offers us new life, says, put it on my tab. This is Jesus, the Good Samaritan. Oh, that's good. Let me close with this. I began the story on this message talking about a story of a man who was in a hole, who couldn't get out. A doctor passes by, a lawyer passes by, a priest passes by. The story goes that his friend walked by. A man named Joe. And he said, Joe, it's me. Can you help me get out of this hole? And Joe, his friend, jumped into the hole. And the guy says, that, were, that was stupid. We're both down here now. <laughs> and the friend says, I've been down here before, and I know the way out. Jesus has been in the deepest of pits. Jesus has been in the darkest of hell. Jesus has been in the worst situation you can imagine, and he knows the way out. And when you attach yourself to Jesus, not only does he raise you up out of your own ditch, he now infuses you with his power to find others who are in a hole, to find those who are in a ditch, to find those who are the recipients of oppression and injustice. He helps us to look with his eyes to pull them out of the ditch too. This is what it means to be a Christian. Amen.
me invite you to close your eyes. Let's have the worship team come forward. Jesus knows the way out. Some of you, you're in a ditch. You're in a hole. You're stuck. And we trust in Jesus as the one who lifts us out. Some of you today, the Holy Spirit is here to encourage you and remind you that you are not alone. And whatever ditch you find yourself in today, maybe your marriage is crumbling, maybe you're lonely and isolated, maybe you're sick in your body. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm here. And then there are those of us here, maybe you've been pulled out of the ditch, but the story doesn't end there. God is calling you to pull others out as well. And so, Lord, we want to hear your voice today. Lord, we want to receive everything you want to give us today that we would be people of compassion, that we would advocate, that we would be workers of justice, reflecting your kingdom, reflecting the good news of this gospel. Holy Spirit, come. Move. Heal. Lord, we sing to you now as a way of responding to you, words of praise and worship. We sing to you in Jesus' name, and everyone said, let's all stand, let's sing together. Amen. Yes, Lord. As we close our gathering, I want to invite our prayer team to come to my left. We have the Lord's table to my right. One of the ways that we respond to this is I love how Jesus ended it. He says, he doesn't say, go and think likewise, go and believe likewise, go and write a book on it likewise. He says, go and do likewise. One of the ways we go and do is by participating um, with what we are already doing in our church. At New Life Fellowship Church, for years, we have come alongside the poor and the powerless. We have sought to offer compassionate ministry and advocacy to the poor, to those that come through our doors, that live in our neighborhood. And so when you volunteer in our Community Development Corporation, when you serve as a small group leader, and many of our um, kids come without, you know, one-parent homes and single-parent homes and, and needing father figures and mother figures, when you come and serve in various ways, we are working for compassionate advocacy and doing our part. And so if you're not engaged right now, if you're not serving in some way, if you're not attached to this community, I want you to be praying about how might the Holy Spirit be leading you to flesh this out? Because at the end of the day, if we heard this message and we say, you know what, I'm gonna go and think likewise. And maybe we, ha we have great theology of justice, but we don't have good practice of justice. And then we're back to Amos last week and Isaiah when God says, woe is you. You have good theology, but you're not fleshing this out. And may we be the people of God 
who don't just have good theology, but we flesh it out. Some of you today, you're in a ditch, you're in a hole, you need prayer today. Some of you, you're not, you don't know Jesus Christ. You've never committed to following Jesus Christ. You're in a spiritual ditch. He wants to breathe in you new life, forgive you of your sins, offer you a new way forward. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never said, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want, to, I want to follow you. If you've never made that decision before, and if you're wondering, I don't know if I've made that decision, you probably haven't made the decision. We have people here that love to pray with you and pray for you to follow Jesus. Jesus is here. His gift of salvation and redemption and compassion is open for you. And for those of you here that um, maybe you're in a ditch, you can't get yourself out. This is why we close in prayer. One of the ways that we enter into the pain of the others by prayer. And this is why we close with receiving prayer. Or if you want to be empowered to work for justice, just come forward and let the Holy Spirit do inside of you what you can't do for yourself. So as we close here at the Lord's table there, if you're new here, I'll be downstairs in the yellow room. I would love to shake your hand and meet you if I've never met you or if it's been a long time since I've seen you. So stop by for a couple of minutes. But as we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. God looks at you with his eyes of loving kindness. God looks at you right now with eyes of compassion. Jesus Christ takes on the cross as a way of saying, that's how much I love you. I'll suffer with you. I'll enter into your pain. He loves you with an everlasting love. Brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, receiving the compassion that God has poured out on you. And out of receiving that, may you offer that to the world around you. May you advocate for those that are on the margins, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace. May we all as a community be workers of righteousness and justice. And as we do so, may we experience the kindness of God, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus. And so I bless you all today in the strong and the beautiful and the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace.